0: And now, and now, the best of Pete Price. The best of Pete Price on Radio City ninety six point seven and City Talk one hundred five point nine. Hello, Anthony. I am Peter. I am.
1: I'm fuming. I was going to put the phones on, listening to all that music.
2: Why are you fuming? It's a music station.
1: No, but I, no, I'm, I'm talking. I want to talk and you're playing music down the phone.
2: are well, you're talking it's, it's now. So what's the, what are you talking?
1: Yeah, I know. Well, I'm ready to go to bed, to be honest, because it's like 25 from one.
2: we'll oh, go to bed. Put the phone down.
1: Well, I'm not going to put the phone down, am I? What, what are you doing anyway?
2: I'm doing a radio show.
1: I've been ringing you on your private line. And yeah, I'm doing a radio down.
2: show. Of course I've put the phone down. I'm doing a radio show. No,
1: you're pressing I... in and letting me listen to you.
2: No, I'm not doing anything. I'm switching my phone off because I can't understand why you'd be ringing when I'm on air.
1: What's to the point? To the BMP, man.
2: But what's the point of ringing when I'm speaking I'm on air? To, I wanted
1: to say... So about then, you the BMP, to Jon- then
2: you ring to Jonathan on 7 to I'm telling Jonathan to not tell
1: you to I'm 7 these same same No, and how I'm, do on... I...
2: Excuse me. You're really being quite silly. How do you think I can possibly answer a private phone when I'm speaking to somebody on a microphone with my headphones
1: on? Yeah, but you were saying I'm trying. You were saying to me I'm trying to do a show on the phone, and then you, I could hear you speaking because you kept. Well,
2: speaking. so you understood. So, yeah. So why but did then you? Then i was con-
1: ringing Jonathan and saying, Jonathan, tell Peter onto the phone. Why I would I to- answer
2: the phone on my private line when I'm speaking to someone?
1: So, anyway, what was I saying?
2: I don't know. what, what were you, you said you were going to bed.
1: Yeah, you just... I was going to say, oh, yeah, about this Ed Miller bang Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: well, I'm I'm a bit gutted, really, because I thought David was going to get it, you know.
2: Right, but he didn't. Ed did.
1: I know, yeah, but did, did, what did you think?
2: I'm not a Labour fan, so I'm not interested.
1: Well, I am big, but... What I was thinking is, because i seen how gutted he was in his eyes and that, you know what I mean? And I was thinking, oh, it's bang out of all. Nobody likes to lose. No, but, I mean, I don't think they've got the right man in standing now, you know what I mean? But yeah, like, that's why before, he's... I think, if if David would have like, won the, um, the leadership contest, then I think maybe Labour definitely would have won the next election, guaranteed. But now, now he's in um, with Ed Miliband, I don't... I don't think it's going to be straightforward as what they think, you know what I mean? Because I think David Cameron's a bit of a better speaker than what.
3: Well, uh, An no, awful,
2: awful lot of people don't agree with you.
1: Well, I That's think why you they know.
2: voted for Ed.
1: Well, we never, because it, it never went like that. It went. It, we no, None of the public got a say anyway, and at the end of the day, the vote never went like that. It went by second and third and fourth votes, so he won by 1.7%, and if you narrow that down, it was only... He only won by people's second choices. Like, for example, Adam Balls. The people say people who voted for him as his first choice. They put tempo put Ed Miliband as the second choice. So that's how the voting system worked on. So yes. in, no one voted for him, really. You know, all really? right. Well,
2: then the whole British government have been conned. The people have been conned. The Labour Party has been conned, and they all stood up and applauded him.
1: No, but if you- the way they voted on the vote I'm system.
2: actually not interested in the way they voted, to but be what honest. You're
1: interested in soap with and all It doesn't that. matter
2: what I'm interested in, it's none of your business. Let's, I happen to be not interested in the rubbish you're talking about.
1: Well, do you rather speak about Deirdre Barlow? I don't what?
2: speak about anything. I'll speak about what I want to speak of. You live your life, I'll live my life. Let's not cross paths.
1: It's better that way, Anthony. Yeah, but you're saying, oh, come on, Pat, what are we What are we?" It
2: doesn't matter what people? I say to Pat. It's nothing to do with you in any shape or form. Nothing to do with you. I've been doing that for 20 years, and it's a feature that a lot of people like, so it's nothing to do with you at all what well, sure I do. Thank would... God I don't have to meet you or speak to you all the time. I think you're a most aggressive, horrible young man with a very strange attitude to life.
1: Well, let's put it this way, yeah. You, you, you'd rather speak about Soap plans.
2: It doesn't matter what oh. I'd rather speak about. You are welcome to talk about what you're talking about. And it I have doesn't. subjects every night. I speak about the soaps 15 minutes once a week. The rest of the time, I have interesting debates, which I had tonight about racism, and we have interesting conversations. So it's not all about soaps. So but you then, don't listen, evidently, because you don't know what you're talking about.
1: But then, when I want to speak to something interesting, and you say like a stupid child, speak. I'm not interested. Well, in I am not, said,
2: Anthony. I am not interested in the Labour Party. End of story. I'm not but, interested. I do apologise if it well, doesn't suit you that I'm not interested in the Labour Party.
1: Well, I'm not interested in soap. I'm well, strong.
2: fine, but you talk about what you want to talk about and then go to bed. You're evidently well, in a right knock because you're tired. You're listen. a really irritating person tonight, so I don't know what the hell's wrong with you. The sooner you go to bed and wake up on the other side of the bed with a big smile on your face, that'll be better for all listen. of us.
1: No, you listen to me, Mum, Little man. Don't call me
2: man. I don't call, man. Me man. don't man. call me man.
1: I said little Don't
2: man. call me man. Or I, said, I will cut you off. Don't you call me. I'm not your man.
1: I said little man. Well,
2: little man? Don't call me little man.
1: I oh, sort your cap out. What? I said, sort your cap
2: out. I haven't a clue what you're talking about. You're talking double Dutch now.
1: Oh, that echo cap you had on the other day.
2: I don't wear a cap.
1: No, you had an echo cap on when I seen you. Know, no I don't dog. wear a cap. You
2: had. I echo. have never worn a cap for the last 20 years.
1: Well, did you hear about my accident on the farm?
2: I want to know about the cap. You're so full of yourself, you see me in an echo cap that I've never worn. What planet are you on? Are you on Zog or something? Are you one of these that voted for David Miliband? This oh, is the wait. man who doesn't even know what I wear. Sees me in the street and reckons I wear a cap. Well, an I echo had, cap.
1: I had a bit of an accident on I'm it. not
2: interested in your accident. I want to know about
1: the cap. Um, well, I've seen you anyway, driving so I'm not passed the smart car and you had this echo cap on and you was waving like everyone in the cars.
2: I was waving everybody in the cars with an echo cap on. You really need to get to bed, Anthony. You really are grouchy and irritating and you evidently need your sleep because you're not making much sense, Anthony.
1: Well, I was just challenging anyway about this... I'm not that.
2: interested in your accident!
1: Well, I've tried, I'm I've...
2: not in the slightest interest. I'm actually more interested in the Labour Party.
1: Well, I was saying... Yeah, I'm walking across the farm, yeah. <sighs> Do you know what I mean?
2: No, I haven't a clue what you're talking about.
1: Well, I'm walking along the farm and then I have I've, then I've fell, start, I fell in this little dive in the farm, so I rang the woman and told her I've sprained my ankle and got a swollen al- al- ankle, and she said, yeah, come down here. Um, we we don't we've got no responsibility. So I said, well, I, if you want to settle it out of court, then I'm prepared to like take you no know, twelve months fruit and veg or something on a offer. You no, know, instead of me taking it to court because I fell on when I was running across her field because I was trying to um, get away. So and I fell on the track in her farm. So I said, I'll have twelve months free fruit and veg, and she slammed the phone down on me.
2: Shouldn't be trespassing on her land.
1: Yeah, but you know. No, she
2: you should. shouldn't be trespassing on her land. You have yeah, no right. And if I had, gun, I had a shotgun, I'd have shot you. Yeah, you'd have been on my land. You'd have had a backside full of buckshot.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. Trespassing well, on I'm my the land. i to get me some, like, you know what I mean? Veg and You probably something. only
2: went there to try and blag something.
1: No, because someone said there was a stash of eggs there, so she have to do, to get some.
2: Oh, she so was stealing as well? No. Well, yes, you said you were a thief.
1: No, you know, I'm not.
2: Uh, You just said there was a stash of eggs. You were going on her land, which was uh, private land, to steal eggs. So you're a thief.
1: Yeah, anyway. The
4: other person has hung
2: up. Thank God. I need to lay down with a a damp cloth over my head.
0: Late Mm -hmm. Night City with Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9. Hello, Keith. Hello,
3: Pete. It's Keith Harris here. Not Keith Harris. Not the
0: Keith Harris. Have we start to
3: (laughs) You see, there's only one Keith Harris. And I'm not not the the football Keith Harris. I'm the one that's Orville's driving the car. We're just on our way home from a gig. And I was just listening to you on the old radio. Show. I'll thought i give you a quick call, matey. Julian Russell's best mate. Do you know, I spoke to him two days ago, and he was at Peter Stringfellas Villa in uh, in Spain. Keith, oh. I, Keith, I spoke to him just after you'd spoken to him. Wow. Ah, there you are. It's <laughs> what a small world, Peter. Keith, how's lovely Orville? He's fine, he's driving at the moment. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, still awake. Oh, he's still awake. We've just come back from Mindhead where we've been doing the uh, 80s adult weekends, you know? Yeah. And uh, we're nearly at Blackpool, so we might miss you. We might get cut off very soon, but uh usually when we're going past Liverpool, we always put you on and have a good old listen to you. <laughs> Keith, where, where are you based now? You're based in Blackpool? Just outside of Blackpool, yeah. Been there for about 20 years now, maybe.
2: Because, you know, we first met at that lovely club in... No, 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 before that. Didn't we meet in Chester? When your your mum was
3: at the... Was celebrity? Absolutely, yes, no, you're so right, yes. At the uh, Royalty Theatre The
2: Royalty Theatre, that was a great, great place.
3: It's now pulled down, and I actually reopened it as a uh, premier inn. Oh. Is, I actually started there when I was fourteen. Yeah, uh, in pantomime, and uh, and it was quite strange going into Premier in on that site because where the box office is is where the reception was. So it's all it was all very. Sh- I actually felt like I was in that old theatre. So uh, it was happy memories. I, they asked me back to open it, you know, which was wonderful. Keith, what are you doing pantomime this year? i am in mean, a great one this year, mate. The first one I haven't uh, directed and produced for 20 years, but I'm at Birmingham Hippodrome with Joan Collins, would you believe? Oh, you were there!
2: Yeah.
3: Oh, my Julie, word. Julie, Julian Clary. Yeah. And Nigel Havers. So, and Jeffrey Holland. Wow, big one, big one. That's uh, a big one. So I'm really looking forward to that piece. It's going to be fantastic. How old is
2: Orville now? How long have you been with Orville.
3: Oh, my goodness me, it's got to be over 30 years, I'm afraid, but it's only four still, of course, that's 30-odd years in duck years,
2: but uh, it's only
3: still four years, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, Keith, if, if, if it's
2: any consolation, I was with the Crankies the other day and Jimmy's now got a bus pass.
3: Oh, right, yeah, well, me too. We're, we're, the, we're the same age, actually. <laughs> how long How long can little Jimmy keep sitting on her husband's knee, you know, potentially of a 12-year-old kid? I don't well, know.
2: I, I can't tell you how surreal the act is getting. I'm very rude, and we can't talk about it now.
3: <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> who's, uh, with, who's with you, Keith? Oh, uh, well, I have a driver. You know him, Derek. No! Yeah.
2: Oh, not Derek from the Black Abbots. The Black Abbots. (laughs) A little
3: and large, yes, oh, yes. Oh, always used to moan, did our Derek. Oh, he still does. (laughs) He still does. (laughs) Drives me up the wall, but there you are. How are you, Derek?
2: Very well feature you. Oh my word! Every time we, every time we had a quiet week at the Shakespeare, Mike Hughes had put the Abbott in. <laughs> me, me and Derek, it was like we were like brothers. He was never out of the place. Tell me, Keith, how many how many have you had? How many actual uh, dummies have you had?
3: Tell Sorry. Orville's getting very, very upset about this.
2: Keith, it's late-night radio. They don't believe it's real. You're all right, mate. Of course they do. There's no no kids listening, I promise you. Uh, No,
3: there's only one Orville. There's only been one Orville, and there'll only be one Orville. Wow, so you must
2: have really looked after it.
3: Oh, yeah, he gets a facelift every year, you know, and... uh, I wish I could join him. Actually, he gets a, a nice respray and a, uh, you know a new coat every year, and yeah. he's still out there doing it and doing it well. I mean, we just played for two and a half thousand people there at, at Butlins, you know. As say, we do this uh, the adult show we've been doing for quite some time now, and uh, the way that's the way it's gone. You know, I would say a good seventy percent of my work has been doing the eighties uh, weekends and all yeah. the which is great too. As you know, we've been put into that pigeonhole for so many years as being known as a children's entertainer. So, you know, as things move on, you have to move on. And uh, if I'm not diverse into doing that, I don't know what I would be doing. No, it is
2: great. I've got to tell you, one of the greatest piece of selling jobs I ever saw was done by you. Picture the scene, ladies and gentlemen. There's Orville on stage and all the kids are there, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, And Orville says, "Hi everybody! I'd like to meet my brother, who's out there somewhere. If you buy a duck, hold them up after the interval. One of them
3: could come on stage. There were thousands of them sold. (laughs) Thousands of them. And uh, and the good news next year, there's going to be thousands more because there's still lots of things in the pipeline for us, which is great. Uh, You know, I I think uh, longevity always stands up and." Like, listening to the x watching that, it's very interesting to see, like you quite rightly point out, how these things are, are made for us to believe that they're real, you know?
2: Yeah. Um, well, we've been in the business a long time, Keith. Me, you Derek, and Derek. Right?
3: Oh, absolutely. Are you still wearing that newspaper suit?
2: I've got it, but I look an absolute prat in it.
3: <laughs> oh, well, there you go, mate. Listen, Peter, I'm nearly at home now, so oh, I- you... Nice talking to you. It's been
2: a long time lately. And by the way, Keith, uh, as it's live radio, I think I owe it to you. I've actually come out.
3: Have you? Yes. Ah, oh, well, I'm waiting for Orville to come out as well at the moment,
0: so... <laughs> Bye-bye, Orville! Bye-bye! See you again! I
3: love you!
0: <laughs> Keith! The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7.
4: Hello, Gillian. Hi. Hi. Right. Uh, I'm just a bit touchy at the moment with the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was younger, I've had a, I've had um, a situation where I, I had the love of a woman,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and since I'm, I'm 43 now, and you know I've had man, do you know what I mean? And I've got children, and now I'm attracted to a woman.
2: So you're bisexual. I
4: don't I don't, don't want to be that.
2: Well, you you might want to be that but if if you've been attracted once before and you're attracted again then you you're bisexual For if we have to put a label on anybody you
4: know, i just i just feel totally like love I lo- you know like lover do you know what i mean right but well, i just don't know how to exp- she she's it's more than her job's worth i mean she works do you know what i mean she you know, I don't want to my her, You don't want to, you know, well, like hang
2: on, that. hang on, I'm, I'm going to explain what you mean by my. I mean, are you friends?
4: Well, we we spoke, we speak, but we're like uh, waiting for that. Um, do you work together. No. Right. To, I go to the place that she works at. Right. Um, and there's a
2: chemistry between the two of you.
4: Yeah, there's that like.
2: Is it both sides?
4: Yeah, it's like oh god, when I see it, it's like. <gasps>
2: so what's what's the problem with you
4: I just don't know how to I've got to approach her because it's more than her job's worth you know what I mean
2: in, in what way is it more than her job's worth there's no no it's not a criminal um you're not a criminal to be um I know. gay I know. No, I know. so you know a job won't be affected if if she is not out or she's never felt like this before then it's it's very difficult for her because you you're opening feelings that she you know she's never experienced before if that in, case, in fact yeah. is the case. Um, I would say that I would just let nature take its course. Oh. I would just just carry on. Uh, have you been for a drink with her?
4: No, and that's what I'm getting told to. But it doesn't feel right. Right. Well, um, don't do it until wouldn't, it wouldn't, feels right. Would you like to come out with a drink with me? You know, and stuff like that. Or you know. Yeah, but you don't,
2: think... don't say it like that. You just say, you just say to her, "Hey, you know, we should go for a drink sometime." <laughs> She'll say yes or no. But if you do it casually, if you yeah. don't put pressure on, we should have a drink, you know. But if you say, "Hey, why don't we go for a drink one time? Yeah. yeah. If you do it that way,
4: or we'll casually, you know, get,
2: you know, and just get to know each other.
3: Yeah,
2: you know, well, you I might get feel- to know, you might get to know, and not, uh, not sort of like a company anymore, you know. You know, once you get to know somebody, you see different sides of somebody. If you're infatuated with her, yeah, she seems I I and assumes if, if you feel she's infatuated with you, yeah. then you need to be in a situation where you can talk. Yeah. You can only talk away from work.
4: It's like loads of people cannot can't hardly get her on her own. It's like oh God, you know, even the and staff you just are say with to... or people are talking to her. And it's like oh, it's so frustrating. And I've wrote a letter, but I don't want to give it to her now because that's, like, easy way out, isn't it? Give her the letter and that's
2: it. I wouldn't put anything on paper. No. She's a total stranger to you. Yeah. That could go into anybody's hands. What you need to do is when you get a low one day, just say, hey, you know what? what do you fancy going for a drink one night? Yeah. Just that. Your mates, what? Yeah. Your mates go out for drinks. Yeah. And they go out for a drink with her and yeah. see, see how it goes. Yeah. You'll get the same feeling. you get the vibes from each other yeah. if they're there. But I wouldn't put anything, anything in paper. No. Not in any shape or form. Just very casual, no pressure. Yeah. Just say to her, fancy going out for a drink one night? Mm. And she'll say, yeah, I'd love that. Or she'll say, no. Yeah. All right? All right. Then. All
5: Thank right. you very much. Pete.
2: Let me know how you get on, Gillian. That'll be interested in that. Huh? Hello, Carla.
5: Hiya, P. Hiya. Um, I'm just wondering if you can sort of help me in, in any way. Um, my little boy has got Tourette. He's nice. had Tourette's for the past, what, four years, five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've contacted the Tourette's Action Group, but unfortunately there's no support in in this area. They've set up a group in Manchester, um, and I went along to that one, and there were six mums there. But it's just so difficult to be able to organise. My time, I've got three other children, um, 18-month-old twins. Yeah. And and an older daughter and it's just quite difficult to be able to to sort everything out and i just wondered if there was anybody in the area who was in a similar situation and had a child with Tourette's i know it's quite rare um and i was quite pushy so tom did get diagnosed quite early yeah but um but it'd just be nice for him to meet somebody else he's he's 11 and a half now, he's just gone into senior school. Um, And I think sometimes, even though he deals with it quite well and he's quite open about it, um, people don't understand fully. Um, He doesn't swear. He doesn't shout out. He just looks like a very twitchy little boy. Um, But sometimes he asks questions that I just don't know the answer to. Yeah. and we go and see a psychiatrist, and she's wonderful, but she doesn't know what it's like to have Tourette's. I don't know what it's like to have Tourette's.
2: Well, have you not put it into the website to see if there's anything?
5: In what website?
2: You know, into Google.
5: Yeah, yeah, I've been in, I've been in touch with, um, with a few different organisations, and they just don't seem, doesn't seem to be anybody registered in the area.
2: So I don't think, if that's the case then, I I don't think there's much chance of... I mean, it's great that you're putting it out, but uh, it doesn't sound as if there'd be much chance of finding anything here.
5: Well, to be honest, it it is quite rare, but there's six people in Manchester who've now managed to sort of form a group. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just a little bit isolating. Um, and You're not sure where to go or we can help. I've contacted a number of organisations and they just haven't been much help at all. Um, I think as a mental illness, it's not one... You know, there's groups for asperges and there's groups for children with ADHD, but mm. it just seems to slip underneath the net a bit.
2: Right. If the Manchester was once set up, they would know of other groups if there was other groups...
5: No, it's newly set up. I went along to the first meeting, um, and these were you no know, six parents who, like me, had emailed the Tourette's Action Group after one of the programs that was on the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, they they sort of have, have got together, but between the six of them, the They're sort of trying to meet quite regularly um, in in Manchester, and what they're doing is is great, but they're all at the beginning of their journey, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm a little bit further down the line, so I don't know where else to go, so I thought, well, if I give you a ring and somebody's listening, maybe, no, there might be a chance. It's
2: massive. All right, Carla.
0: All right, thanks a lot for that, Pete. Late Night City with Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9.
2: Hornbroking. Fascinating subject. We're going to find out what it's all about because I know nothing about it at all. Luckily, I've never had to use this the facility, uh, but we thought we'd get in one of the experts, somebody who's been part of the history of Liverpool, certainly the company has, and we've got uh, Hayward Milton with us. Hello, Hayward. Hello, Peter. I've got to ask, because I've never met anyone with, with the name Hayward, where did Hayward come from?
6: Well, you might have met somebody before. Hayward's an old Anglo-Saxon word, uh, and it's originally the Hogwarden, or the Haywarden, who looked after people's hay or their pigs. Um, I'm afraid there isn't a version for looking after people's jewellery, but I suppose it's in the genes, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> got to ask, what did he call the uh, you call at school? Haywood. You've got the full <laughs> title.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. But you, honestly, I mean, I've known you for a while, but I honestly don't know anyone called Haywood. So you're my first?
6: My first Heywood. I'm glad to boast yeah. that I'm your first, Pete.
2: Now, give us the history of the Milton's, first of all, because Milton <laughs> is, is part of Liverpool, part of Liverpool's history.
6: That's right. My great grandfather uh, was a manager of a pawnbroker's called Whitaker's. Uh, And he was given the chance to buy the business, which he did. Uh, And as it uh, carried on, his sons wanted to go into the business, as I understand the story. uh, They were away fighting in the war and so on. Uh, Wanted to come back, wanted to come into the business, having missed that chance to train. Wanted to be trained as a barrister, I believe, but uh, still wanted to come into the business. Uh, And he said, OK, but it's one man, one shop don't want any of this nonsense with committees where four or five people are drawing money out of it and great aunt Ethel ends up with a share and she knows nothing about it. One man, one shop. And so Milton's descended into what was recently uh, six separate shops all owned by different parts of the family uh, who all got on very well and did the same sort of business. Although in recent times, the last three years, John Milton and I uh, have bought a number of others under our wings. There are now four shops run by John Milton and me uh, and two shops run by a cousin.
2: What is a pawnbroker's?
6: Uh, Pawnbrokers are very similar to uh, a bank. They will lend against a security, uh, although uh, many of the better ones, like ourselves, would also be, in appearance and business, very much uh, middle-market jewellers. So how does it work, tell me? Uh, Well, you will present us with a security, almost always jewellery these days, and say how much you would like to borrow. Uh, Doing that at a bank, normally the answer would uh, immediately be... No, sorry, thank you. Uh, But the pawnbroker lives by lending money. Uh, And that's what we'll do all day long, normally about 300 items a day in the St John's shop, which is known as the busiest in the country. Uh, Really? Absolutely. Um, We'd like to think because we run it well. It's also, perhaps with Liverpool's history as a port, pawnbroking is well established. Um, People will always buy things throughout the year and ask at the time of purchase, how much can I borrow against this when I need the money? That's how they bank. One in five people can't get a bank account. It might seem peculiar to many of us, um, but that's a big number of people who can't get access to money otherwise. And nobody's income and outgoings are a perfectly straight pair of lines. We all have times when we're flush and when we're short. It's... It sounds so simple. Do we know who invented it? Do we know where it came from? Uh, Well, they say it's the second oldest profession. We know what they reckon is the first. (laughs) Uh, We're doing that next week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly been around for hundreds and most probably thousands of years. Uh, Queen Isabella of Spain, I believe it was, who pawned the royal jewels to uh, fund Columbus's expedition. Uh, Without them, we wouldn't have had America. Well, whether that's a good thing in favour of pawnbroking, I'm not sure. America was still there anyway. Uh, But the principle of lending money against securities and getting it back, is as old as the hills. And in essence, let's not forget, it is just the same as a mortgage on a house. You have an asset, and you borrow money against that asset. But wasn't there years ago a stigma towards pawnbroking? Wasn't it sort of sad? Yeah, I think there certainly was a time when it was the desperate who used pawnbrokers. We were all familiar with Dickensian images and a workman pawning his tools. Well, that's a disaster situation because he can't earn without those tools. But it's very much changed today. So it's people borrowing money not out of necessity for the most part, more than half of our customers borrow money for things like uh, holidays, to buy clothes. A big one is to go for a night out. This isn't an really? old lady borrowing to pay for a gas bill. Absolutely not. People want something and they want it now. That's the culture of today, whether you like it or not. you were all familiar with that. And if they can't get money elsewhere, they'll come to a pawnbroker. There is a new uh, shift in the last couple of years, very much uh, a response to what's going on in the world at large, where we're having business customers using us. Again, it's hardly the uh, old lady paying the gas bill. It's somebody, perhaps in the building trade, that's a very common one. They've got their men to pay, haven't been paid on a contract. I need £10,000 today, Haywood. Now, they cannot get that anywhere else. It's not a matter of cost, it's availability. You cannot get money immediately, and I mean in about five minutes. That's how quickly we can do it. Uh, so you're having people in business borrowing money like that to get by. We have many clients who are, Asset-wise, millionaires, but cash is king at the moment. Even those who've got work aren't being paid. So if you have cash, you have a commodity with a greater value than it ever had before. So a business would come in with a piece of jewellery worth 10000 and borrow on that? Normally it would be the individual, the owner of the business, a director or whatever, yes.
2: I'm amazed. You're actually opening a whole new world to me. I have no idea, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners now are surprised as well. When you think of a pawnbroker, you think of the three balls outside of shop, you take the wedding ring in, and he skint. We've got to
6: get food on the table. You have painted the most amazing picture. Well, people always have this impression that it's a slightly miserable place. In fact, it isn't. There's always laughter in a pawnbroker's. It a your um, place.
2: I love your staff. They're outrageous.
6: <laughs> well, we get good customers as well, and that helps. Um, but the fact that 90% of people would reclaim their jewellery shows that they're not on their uppers they're just using it to release a bit of cash from an asset that they've got uh, at a point when their outgoings are greater than their current income uh, and i don't see why anybody should feel that there's anything wrong with that we all do it if we take out an additional mortgage to pay for a conservatory for an example
2: now how do we pay it back i give you a piece of jewelry and you lend me ten thousand pound on it how does it work
6: right well you would get a standard consumer credit agreement exactly the same as with any other lender so you've got great protection from the law on your side Uh, The property remains yours at all times, even if you don't come back for it. Uh, And you would pay that back at any time up to the normal term, which would be seven months for the loan. Uh, And you can pay that in normal ways, uh, with check, debit card, whatever you like. Uh, And most people will within that seven-month term.
2: And what about the interest? How How much?
6: Well, the interest on a loan of that size would be about 4% per month. And if you're like me, old school, actually learned some maths while I was there, um, you'd immediately be thinking, all right, 412 is 48%. Jeepers, that's expensive. And if you were to borrow over a year, yes, there are more favourable ways to borrow. But what you're looking at here is short-term, immediately available borrowing with no other charges. There's a great example I was once given by a charity that dealt with uh, debt and the public. Uh, and it was that if you were stuck for the weekend without your wallet... He said to a pal, oh, give me 50 quid, I'll pay you back on Monday. You did so, and on the Monday he gave me his 50 quid back and at lunch bought him a glass of beer. Everybody's happy, you wouldn't have thought he was ripping you off. But if you worked that out as a loan, with the cost of a price of beer over a year, it would be an extortionate APR of thousands of percent. But in fact, the facility you needed 50 quid then, you were delighted. Well, to many people, we are that friend. I'm talking to uh, Hayward Milton um, about pawnbroking.
2: broking. Tell me, where did you stand when you and other pawnbrokers throughout the country, uh, where did you stand when the banks crashed? How would that affect you? Did that straight away make it easier for you, or did it put you back on the map? And uh, what, Tell me how it, how it worked.
6: Well, people like to think uh, credit crunch, banks collapsing and refusing to lend, was a great spur to us and pawnbrokers have appeared overnight. They haven't. Since 1970, when there were only 50 pawnbrokers in the country our numbers have more than doubled every decade. So that's clearly through boom and bust we have made our place in the market. Uh, And it's really not a matter of people suddenly needing to borrow money from us because they can't get it elsewhere. It's because increasingly, uh, good lenders haven't existed in the banking market. The banks have become poorer and poorer making a decision on an individual lender. Decisions are made at head office rather than the local bank manager, as it used to be. He would say, Mr Price, I like the look of you. I knew your mum smashing you can borrow X amount. Uh, banks can't do that anymore Uh, where the pawnbrokers have been in a position to lend very readily, we do so, it's our business, Uh, and so through different times uh, and for different reasons, whether it's people wanting to borrow money to buy properties as it was ten years ago in Liverpool, we get plenty of people borrowing 20000 to buy properties they got at auction or pay the deposit uh, to times now where they are borrowing because they can't get the money elsewhere it doesn't matter, the reason of our success is that we have been accessible lenders uh, ready to help Tell me, um, how do you check
2: the jewellery? Uh, it's not stolen. I, mean, I know you're a very clever man and your staff are, are, are excellent and you really know what you're doing, but what about stolen jewellery?
6: Well, you're very kind in your compliments, but still it is a problem that we face. We can't know every customer that comes to us. The first thing is to check that the customer is who they say they are and that they live where they say they live. And you do check that. Yes, and that's going to put off most of the baddies. Uh, An awful lot of jewellery you can detect if it has unique numbers on it. Watches are fantastic. I don't understand why the baddies keep targeting watches in their (laughs) jewellery raids because uh, they're the most uniquely numbered items of the lot. And indeed, we get perhaps 10 or 12 arrests across our shops in the year with watches that we've spotted as being on the stolen lists. It can be harder with diamond jewellery. But we are, as I hope Merseyside Police would confirm, indeed we help them in many cases, so I trust that they'd say that, Um, a great friend to the police because we're constantly looking out for items that have been taken. We've no interest in messing about with stolen jewellery. There's plenty of business for us not to be tempted in the slightest. And to give you a statistic of the total loan book that we have across our four shops in Chester and Merseyside, uh, it is... Less than two percent that involves any police inquiry at some stage down the line. And most commonly, that will be a spouse who's pawned the husband's ring or something like that. A child's pawned the mum's ring, that sort of incident.
2: Tell me, uh, you mentioned it belongs to me. So I bring in a necklace yes. or whatever and it belongs to me and it's mine forever. And, uh, what happens when I die? What, what happens about that? Well, uh, well, You must have you must have a, a safe or something where there's lots of stuff that's never been claimed.
6: No, we do end up selling it, but it's the most peculiar situation in law and going to become ever more relevant on the 1st of January. Let me tell you why. Um, although it is never our property and it remains your property with the loan secured against it, if you don't come back within the seven months of the loan, we will write to you at home Uh, and say, look, perhaps you've forgotten about your agreement, or uh, you've lost your ticket, whatever, but if you don't come in and sort something out to pay the interest to extend it, or to take it out uh, within another couple of weeks, then we will have to sell it on your behalf. And indeed, that's what happened. If you don't come in, and again, 10% of people do come in at that stage, uh, then we sell it by what's called private treaty. Uh, And legally, we are selling it on behalf of Peter Price
2: whether i like it or not because you have warned me
6: we have warned you and we have given you a chance to come back and get it let me just cross one bridge here peter we don't want to sell anybody's jewelry i would be the happiest man if we sold none we make our money on the interest on those loans if i sell something that you've brought into me you can never borrow from me using that security again never mind the fact that we're people too you've seen the people in the shop you've said how likable they are and we'd like to feel that we do think that way if somebody came to me and said look I can't afford to get that ring back out now, but in a couple of months I think I'll be able to. Can you hold on to it for me? We do it every single time. We have boxes, about half a dozen of them in the St John's store alone, of things where people have said, I really want that. Can you hold it for me just till such and such a date? We do not want to sell people's jewellery unless we absolutely have to. Do you have regulars that come in every week? Oh, God, don't we just? Uh, One of the nicest things about living in Liverpool is its mix of people, and we certainly get our mix. Uh, There are people in every single week taking the same items in and out. I almost think they do it to come and see us, though I'm sure that's not quite the case. Uh, But yes, there are people who are borrowing 10 or 20 times a year, often with the same piece, in and out all day.
2: got to ask you this, because let's move away a little bit from pawnbroking. there's many, many jewellers in this um, city and, and in the country. Do you, as a boss and your staff, Ever get really excited when somebody walks in with a piece and you go, go and get, uh, go and get John. You've got to see that. You've got to see this, John, you know because it's a classic.
6: Absolutely, um, and it's sometimes not just the jewellery. Sometimes the individual themselves is what has you running around saying, "Crikey, have a look at this, fellas." CCTV is a marvellous thing, isn't it, Peter? Um, but we will come down to see the most hideous or the most gorgeous pieces, and I think why I've stayed in this profession rather than doing other things is for exactly that reason. We never know what is going to come into the shop next. We've had diamonds worth quarter of a million, half a million pounds. We've had 100,000-pound watches, and we've equally had the most awful pieces under the sun. But, hey, that's interesting, isn't it?
2: I knew you'd mention that ring I brought in to show
6: you. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> Which was worth a lot of money, but I understand. It,
2: it is... I, I can't believe I used to wear it. And if you all remember the Shakespeare, you will know I used to wear the ring, because the gag was, I used to come on the ring and say, do you like the ring? That was my mother-in-law. She said to me, when I die, here's £500, get me a nice stone. I thought, why wait? That was the gag I used to do with the ring, so <laughs> that was it. Um, it is a fascinating business. I've got to ask
6: you while you're here as well. What is going on with the price of gold? It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's taking some uh, new thinking on our part to deal with it. Uh there are two things, actually, you need to think about. Everybody's going on about the price of gold, and the paper's has on about the price of gold, which is up from three or $400 an ounce to what is today over $1,300 an ounce. What? What they miss is that the pounds' movement against the dollar is equally relevant. Gold as a commodity is priced in dollars, we are in Britain, which uses the pound, so if the pound moves the right way against the dollar, it exacerbates the value and in fact, because the pound is today trading about one dollar fifty eight where at its highest it was about two dollars ten, the gold price uh, today in Britain, which is particularly relevant, is extraordinarily high. Um, could it go higher yet? Well, I have to say, I believe it will a number of reasons why. Uh, there are four massive economies, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, which are essentially going through uh, industrial revolutions of a kind, creating new middle classes who will inevitably want to buy gold jewellery. It's just one of those things that happens. The industry itself su- sucks up gold. Uh, it's used for industrial purposes worldwide. So you have a lot of physical demand for it. You separately have an enormous lack of confidence worldwide, where previously, if you were a country uh, or an economy doing well, you could invest in dollars euros or whatever else what isn't looking shaky these days well gold is the answer uh, and there are massive economies again like india who have been buying hundreds of tons of gold all supported by worldwide need for Gold jewellery. It's an old jewel's maxim, and there are various indecent versions of it, which I'll perhaps tell you off air. Um, but the maxim goes along the lines of: so long as men fall in love, get married, take mistresses, need to say sorry, they'll be buying jewellery. I so tell we... you what, you
2: really clean that up. <laughs> 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 tell me, we see people advertising: we'll buy your gold. We'll buy your gold. Yes. What um, What happens to it? So I, I, you buy a load of gold, is it melted down? Do you keep it? Do you put it in your safe, forget about it? What, what, what happens to it?
6: I think almost all the people whom you see advertising that gold will be sending it to the refiners and bullion dealers who work on tiny, tiny margins. Uh, we will get, for example, if we send 10 kilos of gold off about 98% of what the gold price actually is on the day. Uh, But that bullion dealer will have already sold that gold to a big manufacturer, perhaps a supplier of goldsmiths or somebody like that, who's trying to cover their risk of the gold price going up even higher. Uh, So it's all about quick turnover. The low margins have become incredible. With so much new competition in the market, there are a lot of fly-by-night, uh, stalls set up in shopping centres and elsewhere. You've seen the adverts on television. If you have a day off work at least, I you sit there and watch the things and think, jeepers, this is boring. Um, people trying to buy gold everywhere.
2: But well, the idea of putting it in a post bag oh. and sending... Pa- I, I I just don't know why anybody would ever do it. <laughs> it just... Uh, when you've got so many jewellers around the corner, that you can go in and see.
6: I think we've seen the death of them now. People like the OFT have investigated it and found that, uh, not surprisingly, the people that have these TV adverts need to pay for those adverts and they End of it. It's the person who sends the gold off who gets a rotten price. It was shown by a survey that, uh, on average, your high street pawnbroker, because most jewelers didn't buy in gold at the time of the survey, but your average high street pawnbroker paid four times what the TV advertisers were paying. Uh, they've not had good press, and I think quite rightly so.
2: Tell me, as as a pawnbroker, uh, is it just jewelry, or can people come in with paintings and sculptures and?
6: Well, there are a number of specialist form brokers who do that. especially. So they're Downing specialist and, and, ones? Oh, well, we all have our own little specialities. Uh, there are a couple in London who will specialise in antique silver and uh, art collections and so on because they're... In the same street as Sotheby's, they can quickly take an artwork in and say, can you confirm this grand old master is what it is? Um, And then big sums accordingly. And Sotheby's itself, a couple of years ago, tried pawnbroking. They called it, I think, art collection loans was their description of it. Uh, But jewellery is by far the greatest component of the security taken in by pawnbrokers. You mustn't confuse us with the buyback shops, a wholly unregulated different industry. You don't have the protection that you do with a pawnbroker. Um, But even within that little subset of lenders, the pawnbrokers, there are the vast number who lend on the weight of gold. It goes on the scales, and that's about it. And what has recently been termed within the industry the super pawnbroker, of whom Miltons were described as the um, prime example, who will specialise in the better quality pieces, not just the sovereign rings and gold rings and other nice pieces, which we all sell, but in the £20,000 watches, £50,000 diamond rings, the nicer pieces that really need some expertise and who are increasingly belonging to customers who need our service. Did you say there's changes on January the 1st? Indeed, yes. This was regarding the sale of items that the pledge or had brought in. and Because we would be selling a forfeited pledge on behalf of the pledge or, and not selling it as our own property, the business, uh, then it's not subject to any VAT. Uh, Now, VAT's going up from 175 percent to to 20% on the 4th of January, it is actually, rather than the 1st. Um, That will make no difference to the bargains that people can find in pawnbrokers. They can still get it with no VAT included at all. And a lot of people have been doing that. The number of pensioners, funnily enough, canny bunch, who've been buying gold at a great rate over the last couple of years is extraordinary. We've had them emptying their banks of their savings, coming in, £10,000 comes out of a shoebox, I'd like as many sovereigns as I can, please. And at the time, we perhaps thought, oh, well, you know, if this is at your own risk. You might be a bit naive. Canny Bunch, most of them have done very, very well out of it.
2: Really? Really?
6: Yeah. Uh, well, they thought that the banks weren't a safe place for their savings to be. And you can no. see why they were right. Well, yes, because
2: we, 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 it happened that way, though, didn't it? It was, it was scary. I mean, you as a jeweller must have worried when you saw what was going on with the banks and we found out the amounts of money that were going missing. And if the government hadn't have bailed them out, we would have been in the doo doo.
6: Oh, heavens above, that's a big question to ask a little pawnbroker, broker, Peter. I don't think it concerned us ourselves, um, but certainly for the wider economy it certainly did. Uh, there have been some absolutely potty uh, activities going on from the banks, and what seems crazy and so clear to everybody that I've spoken with in business since is that they're compounding those errors now. Uh, they're not lending to perfectly safe bets in terms of business or individuals. They will not lend money unless they absolutely have to. And it's one of the safest ways to make money for a bank. I would have thought was lending money. It certainly is for me. And that was the old business model. You lent money at one rate, you paid savers at another, and the difference was what you made for yourself. Uh, they've become too clever by half, and they're not up to the job. Got to ask, is
2: Liverpool the capital of the world for sovereigns? Because all I used to see <laughs> was sovereign rings, sovereign rounds. And, and years ago, it was a ring on every finger. It was fashionable, and they were always sovereigns. So I have visions of you having
6: billions and billions of sovereigns. Well, that certainly was the case, and they're still popular. Uh, In many ways, they're a good buy because it's the closest the public can get to buying gold in its purest form as uh, uh, close to the bullion price as they possibly can. Whether it's a fashionable thing or not isn't for me to say. I'm not an especially fashionable fellow. Uh, Liverpool certainly has an affinity to the sovereign ring I think there's no question you would sell them here more easily than in most cities in times gone past there were lovely stories we've seen, we've had a chap who would have a fight lined up, a straightener on the Sunday he'd be on the Friday buying four square set sovereign rings, they'd come back on the Monday with a bit of blood on the corner <laughs> his knuckle duster had served its purpose but they're the, the rarities, generally it was people just buying it, perhaps as an heirloom you would often get people buying it for a specific year or they would buy four sovereigns and the grandchildren would each get one uh, I think it's a rather nice thing people have looked down on the sovereign ring for a long time and that wasn't always the case a sovereign ring in times of old was very much a status symbol we're talking to a gentleman from milton I've got, uh,
2: it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating um chains as well are so popular in the city aren't they oh,
6: very much so i think there are a few young men who don't have a, a chain necklace or bracelet bought for them uh Again, if you were looking for an investment, I would say you're better with the, the bullion coins, your sovereigns and Krugerrands, but uh, why shouldn't you wear something nice? Fellas wear jewellery now very happily. Um, the footballers did a lot to help the sale of jewellery to, to men, uh, and the chain certainly would be one of our main staples, yes.
2: Why is it you have such an incredible reputation over um, you particularly, over uh, watches? Have you, a, you have a passion for watches?
6: Absolutely, yes. It was one of the things that drew me into the business. Um, I think a lot of men like a good watch, uh, and when you like something, you pick up information about it very quickly, uh, and in the job I'm in, it's been easy to put that time into researching watches, finding a lot about them, uh, and it enabled me to pick up some very rare pieces. There were watches that we, uh, or I paid something like £5,000 a piece for 10 or 15 years ago, which they were never going to make any more of. They were only ever going to increase in value, uh, and indeed, I brought one along to the studio today. No good for radio, but just to uh, tease to you, just to annoy you. Me, to you're annoy not you. Well, I don't think it's your style, <laughs> but this piece, for example, that's a sixty or seventy thousand pound watch, even in the teeth of the recession. That, it, lo- it looks nothing. Why is that Sixty or £70,000? <laughs>
2: because it does look nothing.
6: It's uh, a very rare military issue Rolex Submariner. About a thousand were made and issued to our special forces in the 70s and 80s, and it's in its original form. Anything that's rare, um, ticks those boxes that collectors like, this has the the Rolex connection, it has the military James Bond connection, if you like, from the people that it was issued to, is going to command higher prices. And when there are more buyers than there are goods to be sold, the price goes up. Wow. Uh, So uh, I like them myself and started to uh, take them in and do business in them. And it's like anything, if people can trust what you say and know, yeah, he's the guy to go to speak to, he knows what he's talking about. If he says it's this... That's what it is, Uh, and so we've reached a level now where I've had to take on actually a number of staff from the local Rolex agents to help me out because the demand is so great, but we're in a position I cannot keep up with the demand for good quality watches. Whether this is the same phenomenon, people trying to get their money into something safe um, because a good watch is often seen as such, um, whether it's because of, again, the weak pound, which forced the big brands like Rolex, Cartier, Breitling and Omega to put up their UK prices by about 40% in 18 months at the height of the recession, perversely, purely to protect their international markets, um, the second-hand watch market is stronger than ever. Is there
2: one brand, of, uh, uh, apart from your own personal taste, is there one brand of watches that is the watch in the world?
6: I would ask 20 different fellows and they'd all give 20 different answers, but I'm the one who's right and I say it's right. Uh, <laughs> you need to, uh, for my. If point, there's any of his staff listening, ring in and let's find out what he's really like. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. You'll be fired if you do. Um, I like a watch which I know can be serviced, is going to hold its value in the long term, is going to be accurate. Whether it looks nice is purely a matter of taste, I accept, but on my first three criteria, it would be Rolex all along. If somebody comes to me and says, look, I've got a thousand or two to spend, what should I be buying? That would be my first choice. People change their watches. You know yourself, Peter, we've had these conversations, pieces that you loved 20 years ago, now you wouldn't wear. Uh, and it's the same with watches. I don't want to see a customer lose a pile of money on something. There are many things I could sell today, hand over fist, but I won't sell them because I've got a long-term interest in my customers.
2: Wood, how do all the jewelers survive? There seems to be so many jeweler shops all over the country.
6: Well, I'm afraid, Peter, a lot of them aren't. Uh, There's one which is closed in the area over the weekend. Uh, There are a number of others who are struggling. uh, And indeed, we get the accounts of many of the big ones in the area just to see, uh, gauge how we're doing against them. Uh, A lot of them have got big borrowings. They are in trouble because they cannot replace the stock which they've sold at anything like a price. Uh, They can sell it on for a reasonable profit at. To give you an idea, 10 years ago, Beaver Brooks would perhaps have sold gold perfectly reasonably at £30 a gram in a bracelet. We would sell it second-hand at perhaps £10 a gram. That same gold bracelet today, they might be having to sell for £50 a gram. The public won't stomach it at the moment. Now, if the gold price stays this high for five or ten years, people will come to accept a bracelet of that weight costs so much. Okay, fair enough. But at the moment, they won't. And the new jewellers are really struggling. Uh, Those who've got the big brands used to be able to rely on the marketing that Rolex, Cartier, Brightling and others put out to sell their watches, but they've been hamstrung by this massive increase in prices in the UK. All that they've been able to do is replace that stock with cheaper items like silver, the the beads and the charm bracelets and things, which you've probably seen in the various magazines. Uh, But it's not the same level of business. They are struggling. Jewellers are going to continue going under.
2: You've taken us on an, a really
6: interesting journey. We started with uh, pawnbroking and
2: we've gone right through the whole gamut. Uh, I must ask to finish off with, there is a recession, we're in it still. I personally think people have got money and are hanging on to it. We have problems next year with the cuts coming. What Do people turn more to pawnbroking because of a recession? Or is it just there as part of their life these days?
6: Um, Well, fewer than 1% of the population have ever been into a pawnbroker's. So we can't really claim to give a a clear conclusion to that. There's no question that once they've been in, they will continue to use a pawnbroker's thereafter. Will a recession help them come in in the first instance? Quite possibly, yes. Um, But I think it's not purely that people are... uh, going to lose their jobs, and we know that that's the dreadful news which is coming, and we've every sympathy with that. Believe me, we're people, we see it, we hear those stories. It it affects us as it does anybody who hears the stories that we're all hearing. Um, but it's the fact that nobody else is lending money. The banks have stopped. The places where you could have got money previously, you can't. Perhaps it's been too readily available over the last 15 or 20 years. Now you're down to very few places where you can get it that are regulated or trusted.
2: Fascinating. Hayward Milton, it's been um, an incredible journey through the the world of jewelry and also Paul Broken. Thank you for joining us.
6: Thanks, Peter.
0: The best of Pete Price on Radio City 96.7 and City Talk 105.9.